for the remainder of today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with yet another super accomplished scholar of Reconstruction. As we've attempted to do on our earlier episodes, um, our idea in the conversation here will be to put some of the specific stories that we've considered in a broader context. So Kate Mazur is a historian at Northwestern University, and she's the author of the book, An Example for All the Land, Emancipation and the Struggle over Equality in Washington, D.C. She's also worked extensively with the National Park Service to create commemorative materials related to the Reconstruction era. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Um, I wonder if you could help me understand the context a little bit of how people in the United States at the time thought of the idea of poor people voting in general, regardless of race. Um, right. So I know that there is sort of a lot of, of course, horribly racist ideas like leveled against black people for their their incapacity to vote. And I'm I'm sort of wondering what the background level of assessment of the relationship between property holding and the right to vote or the not even the right to vote, but like whether or not you deserve to vote <laughs> is at the time. Right. I mean, and that's a good question to sort of understand the context um, A sort of large, broad scale narrative of the period before the war or starting, you know, in the early national period is that a lot of states at the beginning of the United States had property requirements for um, for voting. In fact, a, a lot of states had property requirements for voting and didn't have racial requirements for voting. So in other words, they would say, well, you can vote if you have more than $300 worth of property. And if you happen to be African-American and have more than $300 worth of property, you also could vote. Um, and what happened over the course of the decades kind of leading into the Civil War is that states gradually dropped those property requirements to the point where they were almost all gone by the time of the Civil War. So in other words, there were no property requirements for white men, but they added racial restrictions. Um, and so even at so, you know, Pennsylvania is a good example where black men could vote until the 1830s when they were disfranchised. Um, New York gradually dropped its property requirements for white men and, and then added stricter property requirements for black men. So they didn't completely disfranchise them, but they required a larger property requirement from them. And southern states also had gotten rid of property requirements for white men without um, allowing black men to vote. And there was actually a consciousness of this in the antebellum period. Sometimes people would talk about the question of whether African-Americans could be considered citizens of the state in which they lived. And some people sometimes brought up the fact that, oh, in the distant past, uh, we didn't have these racial restrictions on voting or on citizenship. Um, and at the same time before the Civil War, you have to add in the fact that um, there's a beginning of major influxes of immigration. Um, and so in a way, in the decades right before in the 1840s and 50s in the North, there was a growing kind of concern about immigrant voting and whether, you know, these hordes, so-called hordes of immigrants in northern cities, like, were they okay to vote? Like, was it really okay um, for an immigrant of European or Irish origin to spend X number of years here to, you know, to the point where they're qualified to vote and be able to vote? Um, and people were worried about, you know, new influences on urban politics in particular in the north. And so when you get to kind of the Civil War and Reconstruction, the questions about property requirements for voting were not totally off the table. And sometimes people, when they debated the question of 
African-American men's enfranchisement, sometimes they brought up these issues of, um, well, you know, let's just have a property requirement for everyone. We're worried about the so-called like ignorant vote, right? And so instead of um, having a racially restrictive vote, let's just put property requirements on for everyone and then we'll make sure that the right people are voting without having to deal with like the overtly with the question of race. But I mean, that's really part of the context is ongoing serious doubts among some particularly elite Americans about the fitness of a whole bunch of different men for the vote, for the ability to be able to participate in electoral politics. And if you're already worried about that kind of thing, and then you see all of, you know, these freedmen coming into the electorate and being able to vote, that's sort of like your worst nightmare. So related to that sort of fear of, you know, poorer men, uh, less skilled men getting involved in the politics. You know, in this Pike book, he is just preoccupied with corruption. He accuses the South Carolina legislature, the majority of black South Carolina legislature as being sort of uniquely corrupt, corrupt in a way that is um, uh, above and beyond the typical corruption. And I think a lot of the narrative about the lot of popular narrative about reconstruction is that the reconstruction governments were just like unusually corrupt. So my my first question is just to what degree is that even really the case? Were these lawmakers, were these legislatures any more corrupt than their predecessors or their successors? Or were we looking at kind of just like a standard level of 19th century American corruption or if any corruption at all? Right. That's such a good question because – you're right that one of the prevailing kind of myths about Reconstruction and and what was wrong with it was it put in place these incredibly corrupt regimes. And, you know, South Carolina is the sort of super example, but that's kind of the, the line on all of on part of what was wrong with it, especially for people who are like a little too genteel to say that their, their real problem with it was that it was that black people were involved. It's like, no, it's not that. It's just that they're so cor- it, the regimes are so corrupt. Um, and so it's it's first of all, um it's by definition, because it's corruption, it's not always easy to get a handle on that because a lot of it goes on behind the scenes. A number of these type of politicians from this era made sure that their papers didn't survive um, later. Um, but so so one of the starting points of this whole question has to do with the challenges of governing in the South after the Civil War. Um the states themselves were bankrupt largely bankrupted by the prosecution of the war. Um, They went into tremendous debt using Confederate money that then suddenly was had zero value when the war ended and the Confederacy was defeated. The South had always been a place that was somewhat cash poor and the economy had um, kind of depended on um, debt and credit. And now the credit of the states, the credit worthiness of the states was terrible because of the debts incurred in the course of the war. And so it was very hard for them to get loans. Um, they needed to the states in order to function as state governments and in order to generate investment and generate a kind of working economy needed money. And so they certainly tried to tax people um, to get to kind of raise money, but they also tried to um, get foreign investment to issue bonds. Um, and that that problem of trying to kind of come up with a functioning economy in a state in the context of having just come out of the defeat of the Confederacy would have been, you know, virtually impossible for any government to deal with. Um, 
And there was a huge infrastructure problem, right? They didn't, the South was underdeveloped before the war in terms of railroads. Um, and so the idea was to prime the pump, that's the word I was looking, you know, to kind of raise money to solicit investment, particularly in railroads, to help get agriculture back on its feet um, and get the, econ- you know, get the economy back up and running again. And in the course of doing that, these Republican governments got into a certain amount of trouble, um, but it was not it for the most part. Historians have found it was not because they were um, trying to enrich themselves personally. I mean, in any group of politicians, you probably find a few who were trying to do that. Um, but they were in. So you ask, you know, are they were they more corrupt than anybody else of their era? I mean, probably not is the answer. Uh, the Democratic governments, state governments that succeeded these Republican governments um, also got in trouble with overinvestment um, and kind of problems of of debt and, and things like that. And um, and so what it looks like to most historians at this point is that the issues about taxation and spending and spending beyond their means um, and the perception that where was all the money going um, had more to do with the economic crisis that they were facing than with corruption as we would now define it. Did any of the corruption charge relate, you know, simply to black lawmakers just trying new ways of using government? I mean, one thing we've discussed in previous episodes is how something like the Freedmen's Bureau was ineffective in part because it kind of just went beyond the limits of how people even thought about government and politics at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm, I'm assuming that some of these accusations of corruption are like good faith, right? Maybe they weren't. Maybe none of them were. But um, <laughs> I can kind of imagine someone seeing black lawmakers trying to do something different, like not part of the normal political economy, and then saying that's corruption. Right. Well, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, one thing they were doing different as part of these Republican governments, whether they were like South Carolina, kind of more heavily governed by African-Americans or in other states they weren't. But these Republican governments were um, setting up new structures of taxation. They were taxing wealthy people more heavily. They were investing in public education. They were investing in things like um, asylums for you know the deaf or for the mentally ill. They were trying to turn the government into something, um, state governments, m- something more egalitarian and kind of spreading resources around a little more equally than previous governments in the South had done. Most states in the South by the time of the Civil War were really dominated by um, a Democratic Party apparatus that was really dominated by the planter class. And so there's a class basis of the Republican governments that was very, very different from things that Southerners had seen before. And many of the kind of wealthy class had a really big problem with that, right? It was not government in their interests. And that's what they were used to. So for them to charge corruption in that kind of a situation is, you know, they're kind of saying, stop taking my money in the form of taxes and spending it on things that I don't think it should be spent on. Right. 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 Um, and then there's the part about that it's black lawmakers, right? Or that it's um, there's a perception that the Republican Party itself, including the black lawmakers that were involved, the um, white northerners and then the white Southerners who were involved in that Republican coalition, um, that it just wasn't a legitimate government, right? And that African-Americans should never have been enfranchised in the first place, that Northerners were involved. And this whole configuration of this party is corrupt by definition, 
you know, I mean, they didn't even think that the federal policy that created black men's enfranchisement was legitimate. So if you start with that perspective, the whole thing is kind of corrupt from the root. Right, right. So in an edited collection that I looked at for preparing for this episode, there's a speech by Eric Foner that he made about South Carolina lawmakers and people who held, you know, black people who held elected positions. Um, and he sort of did a couple of biographical sketches of them. And he noted that a lot of them, people who'd served in political offices during Reconstruction, even ones who had been sort of high up um, after 1876, sort of couldn't really find their way or didn't really have a place, um, either obviously within the political structure, but also they just kind of didn't have very much money or like much stability. Not always, but sometimes. Um, but it's sort of as a way of saying that, you know, after sort of like the cliff of 1876, that it is like sort of almost like a death of that political leadership or that very few people managed to like find a way to keep on politically participating after that. And I wonder whether that is something that you could comment on. Is there a way to kind of like trace a lineage between people who had these leadership positions during Reconstruction and later instances of black political action? Um, or, you know, is there sort of continuity between this and political action that happens later? Or, you know, where do these people go? <laughs> How mm-hmm. does a, a black politics continue in the South after, you know, everything kind of falls apart? So one answer to that, the the last part of the question, how does black politics continue after everything falls apart? I mean, one thing is that even after 1876, in a lot of places, um, African-Americans continued to vote. Okay, and so one thing that we sometimes talk about is that that kind of conventional uh, break off point of like the end of Reconstruction um, with the contested election of 1876 and removal of the last troops in 1877. It's actually, you know, a lot of interesting stuff continues to happen through the 1880s and and kind of into the beginning of the 1890s. And um, there are interesting um, third party movements where um, African-Americans in places where they're still voting and still able to kind of mobilize a certain amount of political power come together with whites who are trying to resist the Democratic Party and try to make a third party movement. Sometimes they're called fusion movements. Um, In Virginia, they're called the readjusters. And so there are these moments of kind of continuing attempts to kind of make this coalition that is always just out of reach of, you know, kind of African-American voters and white voters who want to reject um, what the Democratic Party was trying to do. And so there's politics going on. And then, um, you know, black churches and black schools, particularly um, historically black colleges, many of which the oldest of which of HBCUs were founded in this period, those continue. Right. And so those continue in the South to be incubators of black education, of political consciousness, of a sense of community and kind of are continuous. They're kind of products to a large extent of the immediate post-emancipation period, and and they continue. And so it's not like the end of Reconstruction meant the the total crushing of um, black life or black hope. And and if we saw it that way, there there would be no way to account for the you know civil rights activism that comes later. On the other hand, a lot of people, the kind of political elite, the black political elite that you're talking about, um, did leave the South. 
So um, they would – because I've studied Washington, D.C. so much, um, an example from South Carolina is Francis Cardozo, who was secretary of state. He held a number of statewide offices in South Carolina. He was basically run out in 1876 or so and um, ended up in Washington, D.C., where he served in a couple different um, federal appointments. And I think in the Treasury Department, he was involved in the D.C. public schools, which were segregated. And there's a, a school named after him in Washington, D.C. Francis Cardozo High School. Um, another example that I happened to notice recently was um, a guy named Emmanuel Fortune, who was involved in reconstruction politics in Florida. I want to say Jackson County, Florida. And he uh, he comes up several times in the KKK hearings when he testified before a congressional committee about the kinds of violence that he and his family and his community were subjected to during Reconstruction. Um, and his son was a guy named T. Thomas Fortune, who was born in 1856, and he ended up becoming a very prominent um, northern black journalist and very involved in uh, late 19th century civil rights organizing. So there is a direct lineage from um, political organizing during Reconstruction by the father to, um, you know, continuing in that tradition by the son. So there are stories like that, but most of the people who, you know, kind of continue to be active in that kind of politics, in that kind of directly resistant politics, end up in the North, right? Like Ida B. Wells also did. But that's not to say that the Southern institutions that continued and persisted were not also important, right? Because those are the bedrock of, um, you know, those became the bedrock of a lot of Black communities. Well, Kate Mazur, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been most enlightening. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So, Rebecca, with your last question um, to Kate was about what happened to these lawmakers afterwards. And I thought you made the really interesting point that the narrative that we might want to have, that everything um, worked out quite poorly for everyone, is not really quite the case, that there is still political activity, that there is still um, politics happening among black Americans in the South and that it wasn't kind of just an immediate, it wasn't immediate repression. I find it so interesting. Like if you're thinking about the history and sort of wanting to make a certain kind of argument, like it, it's powerful to think about the fact that, you know, there were all these black legislators during reconstruction. And then for years and years and years and years, there weren't any, you know, like that, there were Congresses, I mean, you know, the federal Congress, <laughs> you know, the Congress in D.C. Um, during the Reconstruction years that had a significant black representation in comparison to what happened later for years and years and years. But I totally see and agree with her point that it like it's like this tr- sort of tragic narrative that discounts the fact that people were still doing stuff. Right. Um, even if it wasn't necessarily getting elected as a representative from South Carolina to go to D.C. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I can see the arguments on both sides for why it's sort of like unfair to think of the fallow period between the end of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights period as a fallow period. <laughs> um, you know, a time when black politics was sort of like squelched. And, and maybe it's just a question of what do you think of as politics? 
Right. A question of what you think of his politics, a question of whether you think that needs to intersect with mainstream white society for it to be considered politics. There you go. I, I think I mean, I, 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 I've been thinking about this quite a bit, too, because it's it's not just us doing this podcast, but also um, my own recent you know, reading interests have really been in the late 19th and early 20th century, which is simultaneously a very terrible period for black people, but also a period where there's real activism happening, where there's organization happening, where there's politics happening. And maybe it's worth thinking about it in terms of our frame for this podcast and, and, and experimentation. And that obviously after 1877, um, there is some repression that kind of gets worse and heightens uh, and eventually becomes Jim Crow. But within that, within that context, um, which is tragic, black Americans are still experimenting or still testing the boundaries um, of society, still trying to use what power they have and can accumulate to advance their interests. And what, what, what I find actually super interesting about all of this and especially in what Kate was describing, is how sort of an ethos of the collective um, that emerges out of the Civil War and in Reconstruction persists, um, mm-hmm. persists through the century and kind of seems to come to define um, how black Americans participate in politics. No, that totally makes sense to me. And it reminds me of the way that, um, you know, the one book that I read, the Sidney Nathan's book about the plantation in Alabama where the enslaved people ended up owning little parts of it and then continued to own those parts, even over sort of what I think you could call lean years. Um, you know, they still sort of managed to hold on to it. And, you know, I guess I, I totally see what you're saying. What it is is sort of like an ethos that's developed. Um, and maybe the ethos comes from even before the war, you know, during slavery, but it sort of morphs to to fit the circumstances, but it gets built upon. And it's the sort of super impressive to me will to persist even through the leaner times that are that are coming after the end of the time that we're covering in this podcast. That's right. 